Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Okay, uh, this is Danny Goldberg. This is Rock and Rolls, and I'm so happy today to be talking to my old friend, Elliot Mintz. Elliot, um, for those of you who don't know, I urge you to look at his website, uh, which is ElliotMintz.com, is it not? It is. And it has hundreds of uh, video and radio interviews that Elliot has done over the last 50 years. He started at 21 years old at uh, the Pacifica Station in LA, KPFK. Uh, he's also been a media advisor to numerous uh, artists and celebrities and uh, most notably worked with John Lennon for the last many years of his life and with Yoko and the rest of the Lennon family ever since. Uh, but um, I didn't want to start out by talking about that. I want to talk about um, where we are in our lives, first of all. We're both people with Medicare cards. We talked <laughs> we, we, we talk the other day about the different phases of our adult life where there was a certain period, and if I'm interpreting what you said wrong, I'll tell you, of, of sort of uh, just idealism and excitement about being in a place in the world. You know, a period definitely where I think each of us, even while we were out of touch with each other, made sure we made enough money to function correctly in the world and, and to have some security. And now this is sort of a third act that I'm just sort of trying to figure out. And that's one of the jobs of these conversations, although it's not, it's not the only one. And um, the other thing I would like to say as a framing device is that from the very beginning as a broadcaster, in addition to dealing with rock and roll and film stars and other people, you dealt with spiritual teachers. And um, although it was in general part of the so-called 60s culture, the reality is that the vast majority of people who had shows like yours did not choose to do that. And I'm just wondering what, what drew you in that direction? I think that the answer would be more in terms of what drew the spiritual teachers to me. The simple answer is they had no other place to go. In 1962, 63, and 64, if you were a media maven, which I was, if you were coming to Los Angeles, and had some kind of a spiritual message. There was no other place that would welcome you. I welcomed it. I welcomed the individuals because I was searching for the teachings that they might bring to me and my audience. And sh share with the people listening some of those teachers, who, just so they know who you're talking about. The first one who comes to mind is Baba Ramdas because I had um, listened to his tape recordings from his darshans before I met him. Um, and I was incredibly intrigued by him. We met. I interviewed him numerous times, many hours. He was a guest at my house. Um, I was of some minor assist 
for Be Here Now, the first book, which I promoted. And I would play his tapes on my radio show. He and I would later become friends. We would exchange correspondence. I still have those letters. I value them. Not as much as I value his teachings and his essence. Alan Watts was another who appeared. And to sit in a room, be it a radio studio, and to uh, be in Alan's company, that was a gem. Now, he was an early... He taught... uh, Buddhism and and wrote about Buddhism in the 1950s. Is that is that where you? He, he was sort of ahead of the whole hippie thing, right? I believe Alan Watts published more than 30 books about the Eastern, primarily the Zen experience mm-hmm. for the West. No one has written more books. No one was the original interpreter of Eastern faith and Eastern culture to the West as Alan was. He put that on the map here. There were others. There was David Menangi, who was the spiritual chief of the Hopi Indian tribe. There was Allen Ginsberg. There were people whose names you would not immediately recognize. There was Jack Garris. Ten hours of Jack Garris material on my website. Who is that? He was a guy who first turned me on to all of it. Just a fellow who lived in Reseda, 15 miles from where I live now, in a one-bedroom house with his lovely wife, Jeanette, with an organic garden who'd converted his garage into a library of more spiritual literature than I've ever observed in one place at one time. And he would talk to me. He was in his 70s. And I found him so remarkable that I got him a radio show on KPFK, the Pacifica station, called The Wayless Way. And every Sunday morning, he would sit in his garage. You would hear the sound of his goats in the background. And he would extemporaneously talk about everything from Taoism to Buddhism to the, the entire experience. Uh, it was Ram Dass and Jack Garris that opened the window just slightly to whatever doors of perception I might profess to possess. And how at this time in your life do you look at those kind of things? I, I, I feel I'm so connected to some of the things in my 20s that I was groping towards. Um, do, 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 do you have it as a continuum or does it feel like a very separate uh, time in your life? It's a continuum, Danny. It began then. It's never left me. What's left me is my relationship with, quote, the other world, the outer space. The inner space is what governs me. Do you have a regular spiritual practice? Yes. Um, Not to impose mine upon anybody else's, but I spend, you know, I, I... Some people wake up and they uh, go to the gym or they go on a treadmill or something of that kind. Uh, I wake up and before I brush my teeth, I just sit on the floor next to my bed and I meditate. And uh, it has been said that the fundamental difference between prayer and meditation is that when you pray to God, you're asking and when you're meditating, you're listening. So, in those moments before the day begins, I listen to the message, and then, of course, do my best to implement it. 
that plays a larger role in my life than movie stars. And is this a, a, a Buddhist practice? Is it something you created for yourself, cobbling together different things? Is there a particular uh, source for people that were interested in figuring out a, an approach to this sort of thing? Because people often ask me, you know, gee, how do I meditate? And I would say, I don't, I don't know. I can only tell you how I do it. Ditto. Um, I, I don't compartmentalize these experiences. We, we are having our conversation tonight on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. I was raised in the Judaic tradition. Um, that's applicable, especially tonight. Mm. And I'll take that one with me. And when it comes time for Yom Kippur, and when it comes time for atonement, um, I will engage in that. And I can also see the relationship between atonement and forgiveness. And I can see the relationship between atonement, forgiveness, and erase both of them, and do not attach yourself to duality. And I find that these things spill over. So if you're asking me if there's a specific discipline, religious way of thinking, no, it's whatever God evokes within. Mm. The... Um the Jewish thing is something I was thought it would be fun to, to touch on. Uh, I, I came into this uh, sort of way of thinking, you know, pretty much like 60s person. I took LSD. Uh, I uh, uh, stopped taking LSD. I heard Ram Dass talk about the connectivity between some of those experiences and um, uh, Eastern traditions. I also was... Uh, quite fascinated by whatever it was George Harrison was doing in the public sphere, experimenting and, and kind of introducing his audience to, 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 to different things. And I was not raised in a religious uh, uh, Jewish fashion. My family, we, I, we were, me and my brother were not a mitzvah, but we had this cultural awareness of Jewish tradition. And of course, you know, my dad had served in World War II and, you know, my name is Goldberg, which, you know, people know I'm Jewish background. And uh, I remember when, when you and I, uh, the one time we professionally had something in common was we both worked with Don Johnson when Miami Vice was on the air. And one time he did a promotional trip for some reason. I, we got him some money to do something or other in Munich. Yeah. And I remember you said to me, we've got to go visit Dachau. Yeah. Would you, I'm going to visit Dachau. Do you want to come with me? And I, and I did come with you. And it was, you know, it was really... Um, an interesting, different uh, wavelength to get on in the middle of sort of a, you know, show business thing. Um, wh what was it that, that gave you an impetus to want to do that? Unlike your situation, my father was a religious Jew. He was the president of his temple for 45 years. Mm. I was bar mitzvahed. I went to Hebrew school for five years. I, I can't speak Hebrew, but uh, I went to school. Right, right. I honored my father's uh, teachings. And I found in the Judaic Christian tradition, which as we know, is uh, there is an umbrella, which is called the Abrahamic faiths, of which Judaism is one of the three of the religions of the world. And we know if one reads the Holy Quran, there will be references to Moses and Jesus in the book. We are not all that far apart. 
sometimes, like reality television, the personalities move around, but the essence of the experience is there. We were in Munich. Uh, my father had taught me uh, that the end of the day, uh, stand by the side of the accused. And if you ever have the opportunity to find yourself in Germany, you'll know why. Mm. And, and it was a pilgrimage I had to take. What I took from that, Danny, more than everything that everybody has said about uh, the horrors, was that the train ride from the fancy hotel that I was staying in to the concentration camps couldn't have taken more than 30 minutes. From where I live, it would be shorter than going to Malibu. And I would, would read, I would later read about accounts of people alleging that they did not know what was going on there. But in the mornings when they went to work, they turned the windshield wipers on in their car to wipe away the ashes. So, um, that in the world which does not correspond with the wishes of God is only due to our indifference to the teaching. It is easy to turn your back on the lessons. Now, I was just visiting, I, I think it's a mutual friend, but someone I'm sure you admire, uh, Paul Krasner, about a month ago. And, and he, um, certainly one of the smartest people I've ever met. He was the first person I did a podcast with. And, and he was still maintaining his uh, decision to not believe in God because of the Holocaust. He, he said, I just don't see if, you know, how, if there was a God, why God would let that happen. I don't really have any choice about what I believe. I've just had experiences that have led me to conclusions based on my own experiences. I didn't do it based on any kind of analysis. And I never have expected anyone else to, to, to on faith or just belief do things that, you know, it's everybody has their own experiences. So I don't happen to have that point of view that he has just because I've had experiences that lead me to believe there's something much bigger than me. And whether you call it God or not, is not as much as important as the notion that there's a higher consciousness. Um, but but uh, I've heard a lot of people say that. And uh, God knows, even though there's no Holocaust today, there's an awful lot of uh, what Martin Luther King used to call unearned suffering in the world. Um, what, do you have a theory about how to think about this? I have a theory about how to think about this. I don't have a theory as to how we resolve it, but it has been written uh, that there will come a time, maybe not in this lifetime, but there will come a time when all truths are revealed. So um, if I am fortunate enough to live an honorable and righteous life and find myself in a position of judgment, and I am allowed to enter into those gates, I got a couple of questions to God about cancer, about hunger, about Rett syndrome, about the Holocaust, and a few others. And I'm prepared to wait for an answer. Until then, what carries me through is that during the Holocaust, God blinked. What do you mean by that? 
that there was a moment in time that the things that were going on in this singular planet, in this vast universe, may have escaped his attention. Oh, oh that's, that's, a possi- that's a possibility. Right, that is a possibility. Um, well, uh, one thing for sure, it's, it's uh, a lot that I don't know. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, fine with that. Uh, I'll, I'll know what I'm supposed to know. But um, just to change the tone of the conversation, I hope you don't mind me jumping around. Um, you, like me, have had to do business in a world that's pretty materialistic and crass, filled with vanity, ego, uh, people that aren't always... Uh, so easy to deal with and you've been able to uh, have a balance between your inner um, identity and functioning externally at, at, a, at a pretty high level and you know a lot of people I know I talk to they worry well gee if I'm too spiritual is it going to undermine my ability to function in the world or if I'm functioning in the world how would I have time to to be spiritual how, how can, what can you share with people about keeping that balance? It's something I've even always felt that you had. Uh, I, I don't quite know where you got it from. Nor do I. Um, some of the names that we referenced mm. in the earlier part of our conversation may have opened up some of the doors. For me, I operate on channel A or channel B. Channel A is who I am. Channel B is what I do. The nature of how one maintains spiritual stability in the universe is being able to know which button to push, when and how. By the way, I have observed you so many decades ago, Danny, doing your music managerial dance. And I have to tell you that you could, just for the first name that comes to my mind, you could not have done for Bonnie Raitt what you did without coming from a centered place. Even though at that time in your life, you were all consumed in your musical business and, you know, one of the heroes of the era. I view you as being, you know, as big a deal in music as anybody else, besides your intellect and your wisdom and your commitment, etc. But I, I contend that that came from a place in your heart as much as a promotional place in your brain. I don't expect you to say that that's accurate, Elliot. It would be self-serving it's just an observation but did it resonate at all well i would say this um i i have multiple channels also i'm not sure i could limit them to two um among them one is certainly um uh, i believe in doing arithmetic i think if you're in the business world it's it's uh it's not rational not to not to figure out the money not to figure out how much you're spending how much is coming in and if you're going to be advising and helping people uh in their careers that's that's part of the conversation uh at the same time um the choices 
for me of of sort of what to do uh, within that framework of of mathematical reality has been um, 90 plus percent intuitive. I never planned uh, a career. I I had aspirations uh, and there were periods when they were manifest quite quickly and there were periods when I just was getting nowhere and it sort of you know, it's kind of a bell curve over the years, you know, when it, it went, it, it, I'm very grateful that it had enough highs that I had a, a, a decent career. But in terms of uh, the, the nature of advice I would ever give or uh, the nature of connecting with people, um, I, I really uh, did it all intuitively. I, I, I've never been too successful when I tried to plan things out, except you know, except like I'm saying, budgeting matters. I mean, there are things that simply have to be done with the rational mind, and I and I don't have any uh, sentimentality about avoiding rationality. I mean, I think it's it, it's it's. I, I have no patience when people think it's not cool to be rational or to do the math. But that's a very limited. It's an indispensable. What do they say? It's um, necessary, but not not sufficient. You know, in order to to, to function. So, so I just, uh, I always came at it that way and I'm very, uh, you know, and I, I connect that intuition with some of these uh, notions about, you know, what it is to values and what it is to be a person, all that stuff, the inner, the, 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 the inner world. But, but I've, um, you know, I, I've always kind of done it based on just if I can, if I can hear, uh, the right thing to do inside, you know, things tend to go better, but, um, uh, nonetheless, I, uh, I, I got uh, thrown quite a few times over the decades by my ego and my emotions. Things would hurt my feelings and I would uh, overreact to them or um, that, that sort of an area. Um, and, uh, you know, I found this meditation um, and praying because I prayed for many, many years before I could meditate. One of the other distinctions between prayer and meditation is prayer is easier for yeah. some of us. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's always better, I think, to do something rather than nothing to connect with something bigger than yourself. Um, so to me, those things sort of kept me from going completely off the road and crashing and, 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 and burning. Um, and I was very much influenced by a particular teacher who I've talked about, you know, on some of these other podcasts, Hilda Charlton, who I met through Ram Dass, yeah. And by certain readings of a few books that connected with me, one of which is the um, uh, Ramakrishna's, uh, the Gospel According to Sri Ramakrishna, yes. and another being Autobiography of a Yogi, and another one, believe it or not, being a, a children's version of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which my mother first read to me, called the Children's Homer, which for some reason um, gets to me every 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 year or so. Um, so uh, you know, those things sort of. Uh, did it, but you, you've, you, it always seemed to me have had a more uh, disciplined approach to the sort of uh, hour by hour functioning in the world. And uh, I just, like, again, I just wondered whether that came as a result of a conscious decision on your part or whether that's just sort of what your personality is like. Um, I will answer those questions. A few comments on what you just said. You made a distinction between uh, the mathematics, your word, and the intuitive, your word. 
you balance the two. You also knew in your brilliant way of processing information and music that when something resonated with you intuitively, a part of you knew that commercially there'd be a return. It was Channel A, Channel B, Danny Goldberg. It was heart and brain. It's like my my teacher used to say, uh, trust in God, but tie up the camels. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. You got it. So uh, you were not that far away from your core. Um, I think you traveled faster than I did. I don't think you paused as much as I pause. Uh, And in so doing, you served your clients very well. Their returns came in faster than mine. Well, you've worked with and met so many brilliant people. Um, and I know not everybody that we get to work with is brilliant or, or, or is deep. Some, some of it is just business. Some of it are just nice folks that are entertaining people. And some of them I really feel are in touch with some higher energy where it's a different reason to be involved with them in addition to, to the business. So I just would be remiss if I didn't ask you to just who comes to mind as the people that you've worked with or been close to that, that you felt really had some higher energy that, that you learned from and that, that added something good to the world. John and Yoko are the two, of course, yeah, yeah. The, the first for reasons we don't have to discuss. They're there. Yoko's 84 years old now, Danny. Mm. You know, as we record this, she's on her way to Reykjavik, to Iceland, to engage in a ceremony to commemorate uh, John's uh, birth on December 9th. Mm. Um, Of course, them. There are at least a dozen others that follow, and not all of them are recognizable names. Good. We'll learn something. So, um, and... It has always been in a, in a strange way for me, and I know it's difficult because people who are listening to us now, and uh, do you have a comment page in your podcast? Uh, there is, yes. It's, it's, this is on what's called the Be Here Now Network, and it's one of their podcasts, and there is a comment page. And every once in a while, someone makes a comment, and I, I respond to it, so they don't always comment, but there is a comment page, yes. The comments that I get a lot when I do uh, conversations like this on my website or Facebook, or whatever it is, is the bewilderment that people have about a guy who could have spent the years that I did with a John Yoko the years that I represented a Bob Dylan, a Bob Dylan, there's only one, yeah. Um, and, and a number of others, and the things that I profess to, and he being the same guy who ran wild in the street for five years representing Paris Hilton and all those embarrassing YouTube videos of me with Lindsay Lohan and Kim Kardashian, etc. Um, the duality, the duality. The response that I give is, I've always tried in my life 
to get people to use their celebrity to bring people to some kind of higher consciousness. Now, for those who say, well, I'm not certain what kind of higher consciousness Kim Kardashian could bring us to, that goes to the commercial part of the Danny Goldberg brain. That once you have been in a place where you have a platform, a world stage, Angelina Jolie did it. There are others who have done it. I think Sean Penn's pretty interesting. I don't know him, but he's an interesting public figure to me. We had dinner last week. Um, uh, he's about to release a um, uh, something uh, on Audible. Uh, it's a manuscript. It yeah, is, he was on Bill Maher the, uh, on Friday talking about it. Yeah, like reading an audio book about this uh, this guy. Yeah, it was it was Danny. I, I try to read three books a week. You know, I don't watch a lot of TV. I still read, and I live alone. Um, it was one of the most profound pieces of uh, journalism I've experienced in the past ten years. Um, so. Uh, yeah, Sean is an, is an obvious example of somebody who has taken his celebrity and evolved it into a higher purpose and a higher consciousness. And there are a handful of those. We live for those people. Right. We, we live for those people. And one other question of you. Yeah. Do you, do you find, because uh, I think I... I think it was responsive to your question about Channel A, Channel B, Mints, of how I, how I do that dance. Uh, in your case, why do I sense that you're still conflicted by it? Is that a misread? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, um, no, not really. I, um, I don't really feel I have much choice about how to how to go about what I what I do. It's it's uh, I'm grateful for it, uh, extremely grateful for it, and 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 it has different years and different periods of had different bright and darker uh, aspects of it. Um, you know, my teacher told me to be successful. She said, "Go." Hilda said, "Go, go and do your thing, kid." Never, you, you know, she she was such a believer. And and in the idea that uh, if spirituality should come into the world, not be separate from the world, and you bring it into everything you do, you don't avoid what you're supposed to do. And she also is a big believer in always subject anything spiritual to your ethical values, and 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 any any seemingly spiritual thing that violates your ethics is not the right thing. So I really, um, you know, I met her. Um, I've talked about this before, but not lately. I met her when I was around 22. Um, I was unemployed and really, uh, I had no college education, really thought my, my, my professional life was over, that I had just kind of ridden this short wave and uh, had nowhere to go. And, and, um, and, you know, it was exactly after sort of first going to her meetings that, that a new energy came into that part of my life. And I, so I always have associated spirituality and, 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 and career as being part of the same energy. Now, I do have conflicts about uh, 
trying to not be a captive so much of my uh, ego and mm -hmm. uh, insecurities and uh, ambitions and things like that. And uh, that is a conflict that has gone on through the years of, is this really to shine light or is this to make myself look good? Is, is it, a, you know, what, what is the exact uh, balance at, at any moment? I, I found that to be uh, at its most extreme as a conflict when I was running big companies and, and, and in sort of the more of the hothouse of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, commercial success and, and, and less of a conflict. Um, you know, I'm definitely making less money now. I don't have the same external, you know, I don't have hundreds of people working for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm less uh, stressed out about it today probably than I, than I have been. Um, but I always am suspicious of my, uh, you know, the ego is so, uh, uh, clever and um you, you, you know it's the difference like i'm trying to write something now and, and i'm trying to and i and i had to remind myself before I, I actually went off in a thing of i was writing something and it was going to show some uh somebody that i felt adversary to uh, what a fool they were about uh, underestimating something or you know i got went over this whole thing and i said no wait a minute that's not why i'm writing this i'm supposed to write this to get some light out there and so i have some conflicts with my ego but I don't have any confusion. I don't feel I have to make a choice about, uh, you know, being spiritual or, or doing things to the world. To me, they just, uh, you kind of, if you're tuned into your intuition, you know, you know what to do. You've used that expression a few times during the course of our conversation about being tuned into your intuition. Yeah. Between your intuition and your ego is that where you feel conflicted um, i don't know i think um take a moment i think i think there's a well you know taking a moment sometimes is good sometimes just going with the moment is good you okay. know <laughs> so uh, you know i i think there's um different levels of consciousness that I have. I suspect most people do. There's undoubtedly been completely enlightened beings that don't have some of these conflicts. But I, I hear, uh, you know, I have different uh, uh, different uh, impulses to give sort of a non, just a simplistic one. Uh, you know, sometimes there's one part of my brain that would really like to eat pizza. And there's another part of myself that says, you know, that probably wouldn't be good for my body. And the, the pleasure I'd get from it would be very short and the self-loathing would be rather long. And, uh, you know, I, I don't eat pizza too often. So I, I'm not terrified by that impulse, but I'm aware that I have conflicting, you know, impulses. And part of sort of being conscious is to say, well, who is it who's having these impulses, you know, and, and to get in touch with that part of one's consciousness. And then once, once I'm there, everything is easy. And when I forget to go there, uh, things get kind of messy. Well put. Now, beyond pizza, appetite and hunger, beyond health and beauty, and how damn good they taste, um, when you're in touch with that space beyond that duality and that, we'll call it the pizza conflict, I'm curious at this stage in your life, how often you live there. Live where? 
in that level of consciousness of saying, I am beyond my concern of the intuitive versus the intellect, uh, having the pizza and not having the pizza, writing that chapter in the book about that person or not writing it, releasing my ego from the stuff I am doing on a day-to-day basis. How close are you to being free? Oh, I don't know how to measure that. I do know that getting into a practice of, as you've, I don't know how long you've been doing it. I've only been doing it for a few years, really meditating every day. Because for the previous many, many years, I convinced myself, you know, I couldn't. Um, I definitely find it a more higher batting average since I've been doing that. Um, but I just, I just don't, you know, really know how to measure these things. You know, it's just all about, uh, trying to be in the, you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, trying to be as much as the moment. But I, I, uh, I have to beg you, could you answer this question also, since you're asking it of me, I'm curious, uh, what would you say that your answer would be to that question? Hmm. Well, I've been meditating for 50 years since I met Jack Garris when I was 21, I'm 72 now, it has been part of my life. People are always asking why I speak so slowly, move the way I do. I pay attention, you know, to the stones in the Zen pond. It's the only thing that's gotten me from Rolling Stone to Arp. Here I am. However, in terms of any demarcation of a clarity or release, well, that's absurd. Uh, I know nothing. But I am more comfortable with knowing nothing. I am more comfortable with trusting, your word, the instinct as opposed to the intellect. I got nothing to prove to nobody. I want to spend whatever years I have left, and there aren't many, in service. I would like to take what I have learned in the media world and apply it to various philanthropic uh, groups that I support and care about. There is no Elliott Men's Foundation. I can't cut the big checks, but... I can increase awareness, I can draw people into the tent, and among my uh, money-bag clients, I can convince them to make an appropriate financial contribution as well. That's the work that's ahead. And at the end of the day, you know, nobody's going to care one way or another about Elliot Men's. But the, but the legacy that you leave behind has to do with the degree that you free other people from the imprisonment of their own legacy. Oh, I, I, I watched the um, Frank Zappa documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. I just... Um, I, I did. Just, I was curious to see it. And someone asked him about the, his legacy, and he says, who cares? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, exactly. I, I thought... Uh, you know, he's kind of an interesting. I I never had an ear for a lot of his music. I I like major chords. I don't have the the um I'm not a jazzer or, or a fan, you know. I I just don't have the 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 intellect that grasps it. 
but I love his uniqueness and independent, uh, you know, kind of one of a kind thinker. Um, you knew him pretty well. How do you see him in, in the context of, of these last 50 years? I attended the first freak out in Los Angeles roughly 50 years ago. I think he put contemporary rock and roll performance art on the stage. I don't know of anybody who did it before as he did. And I think if one was to look through the, the vast history of music of which you know more than I, and look at Bowie and look at Gaga and look at all those who you know made use of the visuals as well as the musical and the chords. I think Zappa uh, may have been um, one of the pilgrims of rock and roll. He was an intellect. Um, he was one of the first people I interviewed when I was 21. I was completely uh, ill-prepared for the encounter. Um, he didn't use um, mind-expanding, um, consciousness-raising hallucinogenics. No, he no, was, he, he was contemptuous of them, as far as I can tell. He was. Uh, he believed that it would distract people from maybe the root causes of where we are today. He was a brilliant politician, extraordinarily articulate, um, a visionary across the board in music. Um, he is frequently overlooked by the people who are just searching for popularity and record sales. Uh, to me, he was an innovator. Your thoughts? I, I agree with all that. I want to jump back to something you touched on, I think, too briefly from my sensibility and that I really wanted to ask you, you know, I get that you're saying that your, your role with your clients and the people you work with is to try to bring out the best in them, uh, as well as to be of use to them. Um, and I, I also have worked with an extremely wide variety of, of artists and people, some of whom are more just about entertainment and some of whom really view what they do as, almost a spiritual calling and everything in, the, in, in, in between. But, but I'm fascinated by your ability to communicate with younger generations of people. I think it's something that is um, not always so easy to do uh, for, for some of us as we get older. And, and, and you seem to have just effortlessly gone from decade to get decade, uh, from underground to mainstream to tabloid and back and forth, uh, how 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 did you find yourself able to uh, do that? And did it ever uh, was it ever confusing, or did it all come naturally? The latter. It came very naturally. In the cases of some people I've represented or have known, I represented their parents before mm -hmm. them. Yes, I yes. met them when they were children. They were a little bit like my, I feel that way about Sean Ono Lennon, who I met when he was less than a week old. Um, he'll have a birthday in a week as well. Uh, when you grow old with them, it, it feels like you're part of the family. Now, I spend a lot of time with people who are older and far wiser than me. 
they don't get the attention and publicity because, again, you know, it, it's all about the names that you know. Yeah. But in terms of my association with the, you know, quote, young Hollywood during that period of time, oh, I don't know. Um, some people say that I was having a, a midlife crisis. Some people were saying I was having a nervous breakdown. Some people, some of us were jealous. You were? Yeah, that was cool that you find a way into a new chapter of culture. I, I you know, I, I've had been through many different cultures, but not all of them, and I haven't been in some of the ones you were in. I thought it was very, very impressive, and I, I, I knew you were doing good work. I think it's, you know, honest way to make a, a living, and anything like you said in the media reverberates in the society. But <clears throat> I, I think some of it was jealousy. I certainly uh, had a tinge of envy. You should have called me. We could have all gone clubbing together. <laughs> well, I, I had a job, you know. I, so I, So that's what happens, that, and decades pass. But during, and decades passed. But during that time, I never forgot the laughter and the experience when I was the age of some of my clients. Right. When I was hanging out in clubs, you know, when I was representing some of the young Hollywood, I thought about myself going to Steve Paul's in New York. When I was about that age, listening to the music that moved me. Yeah, for those who don't know, Steve Paul had a club in the 60s called Steve Paul's The Scene, where it, it was a dump, but literally Jimi Hendrix would jam there every night, and it was for a few years the most uh, coolest place to be if you loved rock and roll music. And you could also, uh, I mean, that's the genre, but I could also add Studio 54, and I could also add Cafe Wa and Cafe Finjan in the village. I could go on forever. Hmm. But many, many years passed between the scene and the clubs that I went to and the age I was. And Many decades passed. Decades passed. So when I suddenly found myself in some joint, in some club, with some of my younger clients, my younger new friends, listening to their music, watching them dance, watching them get happy, watching them get outrageous, well, I felt... Uh, I was in touch with a little part of me uh, that I had left behind on the trail and that needs to be visited and revisited. I'm not ready yet to grow old, Danny. Well, the key is just staying in the moment. Then there's no age to the moment, you know. I, uh, I um, don't remember most of my dreams, but uh, I remember occasionally I try to write them down, you know, when I do. And one of the things I've noticed about my dreams is I don't even have a name when I'm dreaming. And I certainly don't have an age. But I'm still me. And, uh, you know, I think that's sort of the thing is if you focus on the who you are, the, the age. I mean, you know, the body does what it does. But, um, but it's still quite impressive to go generation to generation with all the changes in technology and all this sort of thing. I mean, a lot of people who are older tend to look down on these things. I've been seeing it even in the political world. I, I, I think this um, podcast will come on just a bit before the election. And 
you know, I won't ask you about politics unless you want to talk about them, but mine are known and I'm a lefty. You know, I was for Bernie Sanders in the primary. I'm for Hillary Clinton in the general election. And, you know, there's all this sort of talk from Hillary supporters sort of lecturing these young people and telling them what to do and how to be responsible. And, uh, you know, I saw Michael Moore on today TV and he said, you know, does anyone remember being 19 and wanting <laughs> and wanting to have a finger wagged in their face, telling them to be responsible? And like, why would anyone think that that approach is going to be effective? And, uh, you know, uh, that's a... Uh, <laughs> That's something I think uh, that also is a good thing not to do as you get older. I miss, um, I, I wish Michael Moore's voice had received a little bit more attention in the past couple of months. That I've missed his absence from mainstream media, you know. Well, you know, his last movie, uh, which has got a kind of uninteresting title called Where to Invade Next, is, it, it's, it's up on all the streaming services now. And I actually think in some ways it's his best movie. It's certainly his most disciplined movie. And it has a warmth and a focus to it. And it's just so brilliant. Uh, so he had the misfortune of, I think, uh, from what I hear, I, you know, of having a, he had the pneumonia and was in like the emergency room the week the movie came out. So he had to cancel a lot of national TV. So he gets on, you know, cable news. He'll get on MSNBC or or Bill Maher, but uh, the last movie is the thing to watch. I I, I just think it's um, it's one of the best things about uh, the reality of the of, of America, you know that I've that I've seen. And it's not, uh, you know, it's not that it's not particularly dark. It's just showing models of things that work around the world. Most of the ideas were American ideas, whether it has to do with healthcare, education, uh, prisons, uh, uh, works, the workspace. And uh, just to see how people do it around the world is, is pretty, it, it's really worth seeing if anyone hasn't seen it. Uh, but, you know, uh, mainstream media, what is mainstream media today? I mean, you, um, you know, you and I came of age when the New York Times and NBC just reached everybody in the country. And now you sort of get these things and you're reaching one fourth of the country. Uh, how do you reach the rest of the country? Through the way we're doing it right now. I mean, we now have a generation that's just glued to these little screens that bring advertisers closer to your eyes. That's why all of our eyes are fading. <laughs> and in the process, some of our vision because the key is to keep the eyes on the screen. But the difference is, remember when we were raised and our parents told us, don't sit too close to the television? Uh, these days, the way they construct smartphones and the rest is to keep your eyes right on top of the advertiser's message. Mm -hmm. And that's the way you reach people. You reach people, obviously, through social media. Uh, look, I'm I'm a little bit old guard in this sense, and I still uh, view network news, and I watch CNN, and I watch uh, Fox, uh, and, you know, I, uh, the BBC and Al Jazeera. I try to pay attention to as many sources as I can. I'm not as worried about the delivery systems and the technology as I am about the news collectors and the mind manipulators 
that as it becomes so accessible to us to reach so many, there are those who would reach many uh, with messages of misfortune. Patriots for profit. Well, it's it's uh, it's a cliche, but I, I just always think it's worth repeating that when the broadcast media started, which is certainly for most of our lives was the, the mass media, uh, they were subject to government licenses. The, 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 the legal and spiritual concept was that the people owned the airwaves. And then in return for uh, getting these licenses, which were extremely lucrative for the owners of the licenses, they had an obligation to provide the public uh, service information. And the news was originally part of that public service. And somewhere along the line, uh, whether it was when 60 Minutes started getting these great ratings or whether when profits started slipping in other areas because of the advent of cable, the idea of broadcast news as a public service separate and not accountable to the norms of entertainment ratings pressures was thrown out the window and it became part of entertainment. And it's it's really the idea of, of a separate uh, conscience existing in the media of the news is uh, awfully scarce uh, because of the way the uh, the incentives are. You know, it's just, uh, I don't know that I would do things differently if I worked at one of these companies because I wouldn't want to get fired. I'm sure I would try to do the best I could, but uh, it's a screwed up system. You know, the, the old, uh, you know, uh, public, uh, public uh, broadcasting, you know, the idea of a public trust and something that was exempt from the profit motive really made it, a much better playing field for the truth. I don't know if Don Hewitt, 60 Minutes, was ever exempt from the profit motive. But I no, am... no, no. He, he helped kind of create the whole thing, but he didn't... He was That was a hell of a show, though, when he ran it. Yeah, it ain't all that shabby now after 40 years either. Um... And I think it's a vehicle for information beyond just entertainment. But look, the wave of the future is what you're doing. You know, what this is. The question is, is it too late? That's the question. It's not about technology. It's not about uh, aging journalists. It's not about lack of interest or numbness. Is it too late? I still talk to Mort Saul, mm. lives in Mill Valley, is about to turn 90. Once a week, he performs at a local nightclub. Tell, tell people who don't know who Mort Saul is in two sentences or three, who he is. Mort Saul, M-O-R-T-S-A-H-L. You can Google him. He was the original stand-up satirist. He was the one who combined humor and uh, thought-provoking concepts, primarily political and romantic. Yeah, he was really the original, what people love about Jon Stewart. He, he kind of invented that whole notion, in a way, of uh, a comedian having a political edge to him, yes? Bill Maher, all the others pay homage to the master, and he is. And he's still uh, as committed, moving a little slowly, etc. But there are no new Mort Sauls. 
Now, uh, with all due respect to John Stewart and uh, Bill and uh, a handful of others, the fact is that the well that we drew upon was fed with utopian water. And my concern is, as we enter, as you say, the election season, 30-odd days from now, that the numbness is almost complete. When some say this is the most important election of our generation, I frequently think it might be the last one. And what concerns me the most is where the passion of concern has gone to. You know, I really um, disagree in this respect. And maybe it's because of seeing the world sometimes when I'm lucky through the eyes of my kids who are 22 and 26. But I just think that the younger people, uh, to me, are... Uh, Certainly in terms of my political beliefs, they're the most progressive generation by far in the country. They're, uh, they, they really are liberated from certain pathologies that other generations had about the sexual preference and, you know, to some extent race, not in all sectors of the society. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they've got a lot of guts because, boy, they're entering a world that uh, is not as uh, economically welcoming as the one that I grew up in. I mean, I would say when I was 18, I dropped out of college and didn't know how to do anything. And I just needed a job to get my own apartment. And I just circled the classified ads in the New York Times and got a job. You know, it wasn't even a question. And that's not that that's not the economy. I think they have a lot of guts. I think they have a lot of uh social consciousness um you know i just think it's a it's a human race has a pretty mixed track record not just you know i mean my goodness look at what in the 60s um although as exciting as it was you know the detroit riot 41 people got killed you know it's horrible that one got killed in charlotte but this was 30 and 40 weekend after weekend in the summer of 67 it's horrible how many Americans were killed in the Iraq war, but 10 times as many were killed in, in the Vietnam war. And I can't stand a lot of the government invasion of privacy and some other things that our government does, but I still think J. Edgar Hoover was worse than anyone we've had lately. So I, I think in some respects, things are better. I think it just looks different from the prism of different ages, but um, I don't really think God turns off the faucet of utopian waters. <laughs> Um, I can't speak for him. It's, it's, it's just a vision that I share. I delight in your optimism, especially about um, millennials and, uh, and your own two sons. and, uh, and one, son, one son and one daughter. Your own two children, yeah. yes. And, and I delight in that. And obviously, uh, what keeps you moving, Danny? What keeps you optimistic? What keeps you believing that there's hope in the future? Oh, uh, I don't really know. It's the same, uh, you know, I, I don't really think it's about believing anything. I think it's about doing what one can in the moment. You know, it's just to be as alive as possible in the moment. It doesn't really require any belief. It's just, 
It's just uh, living that way makes me happier if I can remember to do it. And I do forget. And when I forget, I get preoccupied with all sorts of ridiculous things, uh, a lot of times involving uh, fear or <clears throat> ego. But when I remember, you know, it's all about just being in the moment and, and, and doing what there is to be done right in front of you, making the call, writing the email, taking the breath, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it may be. I, I, I you know, I, but as I say, when I can't meditate, when I. OK. All right. I am back here with Elliot Mintz. We had an, a technical interruption. We want to end this with some closure and harmony. And uh, so it doesn't feel like an abrupt, chaotic ending after this attempt at finding uh, a center. So, um, you know, tell us an inspiring story to end to end with. I, I know you have a pessimistic side to you, but you also get up every morning and shine your light and, and do good work most of the time. Uh, maybe all of the time. But for me, I'm just happy if I could get over 50%. Um, tell us something inspiring. Tell us something that inspired you in the last month. By the way, I don't view myself as a pessimistic person. I mean, um, I, I don't. Uh, why would you say that I'm that I have a pessimistic side? Well, you were saying it may be too late. So I, I that sort of sounded apocalyptic to me. That you said people are maybe so numb that 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 it's not going to be possible to uh, really, I guess, the salvation of the human race. I mean, God knows physically there is uncertainty with between nuclear weapons, global warming, and human craziness. Um, and I have no idea how the human race has made it this far with our complicated personalities and tendency to argue with each other and ability to create lethal weapons. I have to assume there's some positive force. That has that's invisible to us. That has balanced out the lower elements of humanity that are all too obvious. But um, I also uh, go up and down about all this, and I and I just think it's always nice. Uh, there are things that are dispiriting and things that are inspiring, and I just was curious if there's an inspiring one you you wanted to conclude with. You ever hear the one about? Um... You know, the, the, I believe it's the New York Post Office that began a program that when people, children, write letters to Santa Claus around this time of the year, just Santa Claus on the envelope, that it winds up in a certain section of the post office where there are a handful of people who elect to respond to the person who wrote it. Are you aware of that? You know, I'd heard this. I haven't ever really looked into it. I believe it to be true. And I believe um, a number of years ago, there was a young lady who uh, wrote a letter saying that she and her mom were walking down the street in New York City and saw somebody on the street who was homeless in the cold of the season with cardboard around them. Uh, begging for change and wrote a letter to Santa to ask God how he could possibly allow 
such activity to exist and that she couldn't believe in a God that wouldn't do anything about it. Goes back to some of the things we were talking about. And the letter that came back was, oh, I certainly did something about it. I created you. Hmm. Very, very nice. Listen, I urge anyone listening to go to ElliotMintz.com. There are hundreds of things there. I've only listened to a few of them. Uh, the man I've been speaking with has also just been one of the great archivists and interviewers of, of this era. And uh, collectively, it has a tone and a vibe to it that's, I think, uh, something you really should be proud of. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for saying that, and thank you for being my friend after all these years, Danny. I look forward to our next visit. Me too. Bye-bye. God bless.